We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. For a woman who claims to be having a hard time reading in 2021, I sure am creating an abundance of book-related episodes. Maybe it's because I feel like if I talk about reading enough, then the habit will naturally flow forth and Actually, if that was my grand plan, it wasn't. It's working. I am super excited to report that my reading focus and desire is back in full force just in time for this conversation with Sarah from Sarah's Bookshelves Live. Sarah is a fellow reader and her Instagram account, Sarah's Bookshelves, and her podcast, Sarah's Bookshelves Live, where I made an appearance Back in February, talking about my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. Those are two that I have followed for a while now, and so I am super excited to welcome her to 10 Things to Tell You. Sarah lives in Virginia with her husband and her two children, and you might have heard her on the Currently Reading podcast or as part of the Fiction Matters, How to Make a Reader series, or as a guest judge for the Book of the Month Club. We had tons to talk about in this conversation, sharing the best books that we've read lately. Sarah, welcome to 10 Things to Tell You. I'm so excited you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to get to talk to you more than once in such a short period of time. I know. I loved being on your show. You had me on back in February around the time of the book release for Share Your Stuff, which I was so grateful for. I really wanted to be on your show when I was- so thankful that you came on. Oh, it was so fun. It was so fun. Um, So we're going to talk more books today. It is my favorite thing to talk about. Obviously, you have a whole show devoted to books, so it's your favorite thing to talk about too. But before we jump all the way into book talk, will you just tell the audience a little bit about who you are, about your podcast, everything that you want us to know? Please do share. Absolutely. I am a lifelong reader, but I'm not the kind of lifelong reader who was an English major, has read all the classics, went through all that kind of academia stuff. 
I am a lifelong reader who fell in love with reading by reading the very esteemed books like Sweet Valley High and Babysitter's Club and Nancy Drew and B.C. Andrews, which my mother was horrified by. And after having my first child about nine years ago, I really wanted something for myself. I had quit my job, my sort of more traditional job. And I was a stay-at-home mom and I was like, oh, I really need something to do with my brain. And I started a blog called Sarah's Bookshelves and I fell in love with writing about books. And then about two years ago, that morphed into the podcast, Sarah's Bookshelves Live. And I found I loved talking about books and the book world even more than I loved writing about them. So I'm still doing the blog a little bit, but it's definitely cut back And now I really focus on the podcast where I interview authors and other bookish people that then that's the majority of the episodes. And then for another segment of the episodes, I have an amazing part-time recurring co-host, Catherine, and we talk books with each other. And I'm, I should probably give you some background on personally, I grew up in Virginia, so Southern, but not way down South. And I spent about 15 to 20 years in the New York City area, including Manhattan. And then I have now relocated back to Virginia. I don't think I realized that Sarah's Bookshelves was a blog first. And so, you yeah, know, I, I was a blogger first also. Why did you decide to make the leap from blogging about books to podcasting about books? Was it like Bookstagram? you know, put you in that direction? Was it just, you were tired of all the internet writing? Like, I'm just asking because I have so many reasons I went to podcasting, but why did you? Honestly, mine was not bookstagram. It was boredom. I sort of, every year with the blog, I would think about what direction do I want to take it for this coming year? And I got to a point where I was like, I don't have any more directions that I can think of to take this, or I'm excited about to take this. And sort of around the same time, both of my kids got into elementary school. So I had some more time on my hands. Like I didn't have the, the noon preschool pickup anymore. And I guested on a couple people's book podcasts sort of around that same period. And I was like, wow, I really love the podcast thing. And I took it forward from there. Do you feel like it has changed the way that you review books? Like, I don't know how often you were posting on your blog, like if it was weekly or daily or whatever, but I just wonder now for people who podcast primarily about books, and I have lots of friends that do that, like what your, not what your reading schedule is like, although we are going to talk about that in a second, but more (laughs) just like, did it change the pace of which you had to read and like think about content if you're going to be sharing about it? I always wonder about this with book reviewers. So mine's a little bit different in that, no, I certainly started reading less when I started the podcast because of time. But I also interview guests every week. So we're talking about the books they're reading. My episodes I do with Catherine are more focused on what we are reading, but it's a very small number of episodes in the course of a year, maybe 10 or 12. And I do now read much farther ahead than I used to because I'm thinking about upcoming guests and authors kind of, you got to book them decently early. And I'm reading to prep for our quarterly preview episodes, which are 
the most, the popular episodes we do, Catherine and myself. And so I try to read as many of the books I'm going to share in advance. I don't always get to all of them, but in that sense, farther in advance, but not quantity per se. So you're still reading about the same amount. Yeah. And I, I would say I'm reading maybe 30 books a year less since I started the podcast. Wait, really? Because of the time that it takes to make the podcast? Yeah. The blog was so much easier that I felt like the blog took so much less time. Okay. But wait, so let's talk about your reading then. I want to hear from you all kinds of things about your reading life. And I always ask guests this because before we talk about what the best things that we've read lately, I like for everyone to kind of know what the playing field is, like kind of know what our, our tastes are in this moment. But before you tell us like, your favorite books of all time or anything. Just tell me about your reading habits. Like when do you read? Do you prefer audiobooks or eBooks or hard copies? Um, do you have like a reading plan? This is sort of the bane of my existence in 2021 is the idea of a reading <laughs> plan, but I just keep talking about it. So, okay. Like all those things, tell me your reading, like sort of what your reading life looks like. Sure. So let me start with time of day since that's quick and easy. I read whenever I can in the smallest snippets of time that I have available to me, because I rarely have big segments of hours to sit down and read. I'm never a person that is going to be able to read a book in a day because I don't have a full day to read. I've got two kids, they're busy. I am still the primary caregiver. I don't have, you know, childcare to to do all these things. So yeah, I just read whenever I can. I prefer ebooks. I know that is anathema to many book lovers. I'm so sorry to tell you that, but it's they're just more convenient for me. And I can carry it wherever I go. I read in very strange places and while doing strange things. I also have started listening to audiobooks over the past couple of years, and that probably makes up about 30% of my reading now, although I really am a podcast girl at heart. So I have to balance those two things. And a reading plan, I have a loose reading plan. And for me, I keep a TBR list as many of us do, right? But mine is organized in a very specific way based on how I read. And that is by publication date. So I'm always reading one or two months in advance of when these books are going to get published. So I'm reading mostly new releases throughout the year, which I every year say I want to read more backlist books, more older books, but it never happens. (laughs) I do work them in on audio a little bit more, but my organization is done by publication date. And I also have different extra buckets. Like I have an audio TBR, like I have a great for summer TBR, which are lighter books that kind of fit different moods I'm in. And if depending on the mood I'm in within my loose structure, I can pull from these different buckets. Okay. That is interesting to read by publication date because that's not how I read at all. I mean, except for if a shiny new bestseller comes out, I might read it that week it comes out, but I'm not reading books in advance hardly ever. And I am so dictated by mood And I wish that I wasn't because part of me like wants to have a plan and wants to be more organized about it or methodical about it. I am methodical about the times of day that I read. I read nonfiction in the morning as part of my morning routine for 20 minutes. I set a timer. I read fiction in the afternoon 
well, that's not always true. It's not always fiction. If I'm reading a really great memoir or something else, but I read not what I read in the morning. I really should differentiate it, not between fiction and nonfiction, but like morning reading is a very specific thing for me. It's setting the tone for the day. It's like a productivity book or a self-help or inspiration or some kind of thing. I would never read a novel in the morning and I would never read like general nonfiction, memoir or whatever. No, it, the, my morning reading is a very specific type of thing for me. It's like part of the way I get ready for my day. And then everything else I'm reading happens throughout right. the day. So I am, I'm methodical about when I read, I guess I should say, but the plan of what I'm reading, it's always all over the place. In 2021, it is incredibly all over the place. I've been super open about that, that I've had such a hard time reading until now. I'm super excited that for our recording, I have like books to talk about. Hooray. <laughs> and so that's exciting, but it has been a real slog. Okay. Well, tell me what some of your favorite books of all time, you know, like what's your hall of fame book, a few of those or authors or genres, like sort of give me an idea of just kind of your taste before we go in sharing our, the best books we've read lately. Sure. This is a really hard question to ask readers, as I'm sure, you know, you, and I know you have a very concrete answer that you can give about who your all-time favorite author is, Stephen King. I don't have that per se. I have someone that comes kind of close, but I've still got a number of kind of favorite authors and I've got people that are coming up now that have, I've loved maybe two books by them. And I'm, I think I'm going to love everything they write moving forward. So it's a little bit of a messier pool for me, but I live in the literary fiction world mostly, but I do like my literary fiction to have a plot. I don't read like high literary fiction. I don't love high literary fiction. I like a great mix of plot and style and writing. And I love dysfunctional family dramas. I love dark books. I do not love happy books necessarily all the time. <laughs> Same. Although I, I, I can't do happy. Sorry. It's everybody. tough. I know. Like I, I have been a little more open to it lately. And one I'm going to share today, I would say is a happy book, but it has a lot of like punch and depth also. And that's why I was able to tolerate it. And I did more than tolerate it. I loved it. But yeah, I know I'm a little bit of a different reader in that sense. I, I don't like things tied perfectly neatly up in a bow, that kind of stuff. I, I also DNF very quickly if I don't like something and I'm not, I don't try to push myself through something that I would rather not be reading. Yeah, so, I have no pro I have no problem giving up a book either, uh quitting a book. I mean, sometimes I wrestle with it if it's incredibly buzzworthy, if a ton of people are saying it's going to be their favorite book of the year, then I might push a little bit further than I normally would, but in general, if I'm hating a book, if it is not meeting my <laughs> reading needs, my mood at the time, I will quit a book so hard. I have no problem with that. I mean, we're all adults. We're not in school anymore. Reading is supposed to be enjoyable. I just, I, I can't get past. And, and then there's limited time in the day. So I'm going to share two of my favorite books there. I, I don't know what my number one favorite book is. I, that's a, such a hard question to answer, but these are two that I've loved. One's a new, relatively new one. And one is a very old one. And the first one is the Heart's Invisible Furies by John Boyne. Mm. Have you read this? I have. I loved it. Oh, I loved it so much. It's about a young boy named Cyril, and he was born out of wedlock to an Irish country teenager and given up for adoption. And this 
the book basically checks in with his life every seven years and he is wrestling with his own identity while living in a country that is that is dominated by the catholic church so there's it's just for me the reason i loved it is it's got the range of emotions it's heartfelt it's emotional it's unexpectedly funny and it's serious but also not there's parts of it that read like juicy gossip at times and i absolutely adored it it's it's the most recent book I would say I added to my all-time favorites list. And I also have loved other things that John Boyne has written. Did you read A Ladder to the Sky? I did, which was so very different and also five stars for me. So I was furious at A Ladder to the Sky, which was John Boyne's book maybe two years ago when that book came out. And I was just, there's a lot to be angry at in that book. The the, one of the main characters is really pretty despicable and, you know, the main I just, character. <laughs> yeah, that main character is one was, of the greatest villains I've ever read, I think. So amazing. And then, but I was mad about it. I was really mad about it. But then I, now here we are years later and I still think about that book. I actually still think about that book more than I think about the Hearts and Invisible Furies, even though like I enjoyed the Hearts and Invisible Furies more like as a reader. But as time has played out, I'm like, you know, the one that stuck with me is A Ladder to the Sky. That is so interesting. I, that, I've, I've never heard anyone say that before. Well, I mean, I, we I, I hesitate to even recommend that book because it is infuriating. But if you want like a real ride, it is. Oh, yeah. It is. Okay, what's your other one? So my other one, this is if I was absolutely forced to pick a favorite author, it would be Pat Conroy going all the way back to my childhood. And my favorite book of his is The Lords of Discipline, which is not most people's favorite book by Pat Conroy. Most people's favorite is The Prince of Tides, which is his more famous book. Mm -hmm. But I read The Lords of Discipline as a kid. I think I stole it off of my mom's bookshelf when I was young. I reread it in probably 2014 or 15, something like that. So I think it still stands up for me. And it's about a teenager who attends a military college in Charleston, South Carolina, which is very closely based on the Citadel, which is where Pat Conroy himself went to college. And Will McLean, who's the protagonist, he goes to this military school because his father wants him to, and not because he actually wants to be in the military. He has serious doubts about the military, and he sort of confronts this secret organization at the school called the 10. And they try to weed out students that they deem not fitting in well with the school and they try to weed them out before graduation. So I also love campus novels. So this for me was a campus novel. It is very contrasting in Pat Conroy's love affair with the city of Charleston and how he writes about the city of Charleston. Also his hatred of the military kind of combined together. And this book for me, Pat Conroy's writing is just off the page for me. And this one, though, had the strongest plot of all his other books mixed in with his writing style. Oh, that's so interesting. I haven't read Pat Conroy in decades. He is a quintessential Southern writer. So that he makes me is. Laugh because you were like, I'm not quite Southern. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Pat Conroy's on your top list. You're, you're <laughs> tiptoeing there for sure. Um, he is an amazing writer. I've read... 
I've maybe only read two or three of his. And again, it's been a really long time. He also kind of reminds me of my mom, which is funny. My mom's not a huge reader, but she loved the Prince of Tides. And so I, I don't know. I just sort of tie them together. So interesting how that is true. Anyway, I love those. Thank you for sharing those. Of course. And there's some authors that, you know, more recent people that I absolutely adore are Taylor Jenkins Reid and Britt Bennett, Tiari Jones, Meg Wolitzer. Got a lot of women here that I'm listing out. (laughs) I love all of those. That's so, that's a great list. Okay. So let's talk about the best books that we have read lately. Again, I'm so excited (laughs) to be able to talk about books that I've actually read. Two of mine that I'm going to share are audiobooks, which is bananas because I don't really like audiobooks, but but listening to something has been helpful to me as I've struggled with sort of reading in a more traditional way. And I can listen to nonfiction audiobooks a lot easier. But we're each going to share three to five of the best things that we have read lately. Best being an all-encompassing word. Best <laughs> because you enjoyed it, because it was extremely well-written, because it was an important topic. Like there's all kinds of reasons that we're deeming this as the best books that we have read lately. But I'm going to go first. One of the best books that I've read lately, and I don't know if I want to credit this book with getting me out of the, my reading slump or not, because it's kind of simultaneous with a few other things. But it is definitely one of the best written things that I have read in a while. And that is The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. Did you read The Prophets? I have not read it. I've heard about it. I remember it was a book of the month pick. And I remember looking at it and being like, this sounds really interesting, but my brain can't, I don't think my brain can handle at the moment. (laughs) Okay. You are wise to choose that because this book is not enjoyable per se. I mean, unless right. this is really your genre that you, that you love, this book is difficult. It is truly literature. It is so beautifully written, but it is hard. It's about, well, it's about a lot of things, but primarily it's about these two young enslaved men in the 1800s, Isaiah and Samuel on a plantation in the South, of course. They weren't uh, born on the plantation. One of them was, one of them wasn't, but they met as children and and we're meeting them as a reader, we're meeting them as young adults, young men, and they are in a romantic relationship that is beautiful and poetic. And they sort of take care of the animals in the barn. They're sort of set apart from the other enslaved people on the plantation. And so there's a lot of sort of different dynamics happening in this book. You obviously have the uh, plantation owners, the family that lives in the home, and then these sort of dynamics that are happening among the enslaved people and the family that owns the plantation. So there's a lot of complicated things happening, including, you know, religious themes. There is some violence. There's obviously all the, you know, inherent difficulties of talking about humans enslaving other humans. I mean, there's just a lot in this book what stands apart is this beautiful romantic relationship between Isaiah and Samuel. So I liked reading this book because like I said, it was the most well-written thing I have read in a while. And I was ready for that. I tried to get out of my 
uh, reading slump by reading lighter things, like you said, or reading very popular things just to, you know, I felt like that would kind of get the ball rolling and it didn't work for me. So to read something that is so well done and like written at a completely different level, like the prophets, that is what got me sort of out of my slump. That was like, oh, this is, you know, this is a different level. However, I have mixed feelings about the book as a whole. I don't totally understand the title of the book. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's jumps in time, there's jumps in perspective, there's jumps in structure that are hard, even if you're not in a reading slump, you know what I mean? They're, they're just like a little bit confusing where you really have to be honed in to the point of where I didn't totally understand some things that were happening in The Prophets. But I'm talking about it, I'm sharing about it because it was so well-written, because it was touching on certain themes on the, in a book like this about slavery, about plantations, about uh, human dynamics, I felt like it went in a different direction than we usually read in these stories. And I don't mean in a different direction that it was, uh, you know, I don't, that could be taken a weird way, but I just mean like, there were some themes there that I was like, oh, I actually, I haven't read this before. You know, it was like a, new, a fresh sort of perspective in a way. And again, so well-written, but this is a difficult book. There is, uh, there are some few scenes towards the end that will be almost impossible for a sensitive reader. It is, is, it's hard. It's a hard book. Beautifully, beautifully well done. I'm so glad I read it. And I also just want to put it out there as like, if you're also having trouble reading, maybe try something harder instead of trying something lighter. I think we need a term and I run into this all the time on my own podcast a term to talk about books like this that are really hard, but so good where you want to say, oh, I loved this book, but it feels weird to say I loved this book about such a terrible time and so much suffering. I haven't come up with the word yet, but when you started to introduce this book, it got me thinking about that, how you did the same thing I do. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to like say you loved it or it's also hard, first of all, on the topic thing, for sure. It's, there's a lot, there's several genres where it's hard to say that you love something because it's hard, but also a book like this, where you're like, I can really appreciate this book because I can see that it is playing at a different level, but it, sometimes it's hard to recommend books like that. Have you ever read Kindred by Octavia Butler? No, but Octavia Butler a lot, I think, of what Robert Jones Jr. was doing was a, an homage to some of those other writers of color, including Octavia Butler. It's when you started talking about it, it sounded, I was having kindred sort of vibes, which I just read at the end of the year of end of 2020. And I loved, and I was, it, it was reminding me of kindred, you know, without my having read the prophets, there are certainly some elements of the prophets that are not in kindred the relationship between the two guys. Yeah, that was, well, that's one of the things, um, not just the relationship that it was between two men, although that is notable that I hadn't read something like that in a novel about slavery, but the beauty of their relationship, there was like a real, I don't even know how to talk about this because it's, you know, it's (laughs) tricky to talk about like intimate, intimate things. I I just, I thought it was really well done and just very, yeah, beautiful. This is the only word I can say about it. It's really beautiful. Those are my thoughts on The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. What is the first book that you want to share with everyone? Well, this is also a book on the harder side. I will say I loved it. It's five stars for me. I would imagine it will be amongst my best books of 2021. It will definitely be 
among my best books of 2021 so far list that I'll be putting out in June. And Laura, if I remember correctly, you were lukewarm on Daisy Jones and the Six, right? I was warmer than lukewarm. I like, no, I enjoyed it a lot, but I didn't like, it didn't like rock my world, but I enjoyed it a lot. I liked it a lot. And I love her writing and I love her books. Taylor Jenkins read. I think if you liked that book, but you wanted something to rock your world a little bit more, this one might be up your alley. It is called The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, and it's by Donnie Walton, and it came out at the end of March. It is her debut novel, and it is also a fictional oral history of a rock band, just just like Jay-Z Jones and the Six, but it has all of these other elements layered on top of it. It's to- the story is told by a journalist named Sunny, and she is the daughter of the drummer of this rock duo, and she goes to investigate the story behind an iconic photograph that was taken of the rock duo. I should say the rock duo, uh, they are Opal and Nev, obviously, but Opal is black and Nev is white. And she goes to investigate this iconic photograph that was taken of them at a concert that resulted in a riot in the 1970s. This is the kind of book where I definitely forgot I was reading fiction I kept being like, oh, I want to Google this. I want to Google that. And I'm like, no, wait, this is fiction, which is the same way I felt about Daisy Jones. And obviously this is going to get comparisons to Daisy Jones because of the structure and the topic. And I do think there are similar in a lot of ways, but I think Daisy is the more fun escapist version. And this book has a very strong social political message about race in America, which the overarching message I took was sort of everything changes but everything stays the same. Mm. Like Daisy, it's sort of the behind the scenes story of the rise of this rock duo and their eventual breakup, but it's centered around this photograph. And the interesting thing about the photograph is that, and the interesting thing that Donnie Walton was able to bring out with this oral history structure, particularly as it related to the photograph, is that there's so many people dissected it to have this deep political meaning in various different ways, whether that was deserved or not. And then you hear the central people involved in the photograph that are sort of like, I don't know, it was just a photograph of a moment that happened. I loved those sort of counterpunching opinions that you get in this really quick staccato fashion in the form of an oral history. And then the character of Opal. I mean, she is just memorable and singular and she's extremely provocative, but she's also very vulnerable. She's got this very tough exterior, but she's kind of breaking inside and she's really funky. She has this great sense of funky style and the stylist that travels along with her who really reminded me of Andre Leon Talley. And the whole story is it's a bit of a slow build for me. I I think it was maybe 25 or 30% in, I was like, I like this. I don't like it as much as I like Daisy. But as the story started to pick up steam and I'm, I don't want to go into the details about like why it picks up steam. Cause that was, I, I loved being surprised by all that, but I was like, oh, wow, I'm fully engrossed in this. This is a really like meaningful book. And it's just kind of, if you want a little darker, a little grittier, a little less of an escape reading and you loved Daisy Jones. I think this one would be perfect. Okay. Well, you're talking me into it. I, uh, what I liked about Daisy Jones is it was a not just a quick read, like only took you so many hours, but like 
it was literally a quick read, like the structure of that, the oral history of that, the way your eye moves on the page is different than how your eye takes in long paragraphs of prose. And I liked that. Okay. So I'm going to take a a different turn as this goes. The next book that I want to talk about is Breath by James Nestor. Have you read this one? I have not. So I don't remember why I bought this. (laughs) This is what happens (laughs) on my to read stack. Someone recommends something to me, either I'm scrolling and, you know, somebody has bookstagrammed about something or someone has recommended it in DMs directly, or I don't even know what sometimes books just show up on my Kindle or on my audio (laughs) or on my doorstep (laughs) from Amazon. And I'm like, huh, like I must have really been convinced by that in the two minutes that it took to order it. So I'm not 100% sure where this book came from, although it's actually a bestseller. I think it's popular, but why I bought it, cannot recall. However, it seems like it would be really, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say boring, like who wants to read a whole book, you know, 300 plus pages about your breath. I ended up listening to this one on audiobook and I'm so glad I did. It was completely fascinating. It was not boring and I'm not into medical literature. I'm not into anything like that, but it was really fascinating. First of all, I think I must've bought it because I talk a lot about anxiety. I talk a lot about mental health. I talk some about meditation. So breath is important in all of those, in all of those ways, but this book while it does touch on some of the mental health aspects of it, it's also actually talking about a lot about evolution of the human skull and the way that humans breathe and the way we use our teeth and the way that we use our nasal passages is different from our ancestors. So if you think about like the Neanderthal man, cavemen, like kind of what we know about the skulls used to be a lot bigger, broader, and wider. We had a lot wider nasal, nasal passages that did not get blocked so often. So now there's so many reasons that we don't breathe through our nose. So allergies, inflammation, like all these kind of things that happen. And so we end up breathing through our mouth. Also, the way that we eat has changed where we are obviously not hunting and ripping apart animals with our hands and, you know, eating a lot of processed foods that require our teeth to not be as strong as they used to. Like a lot of things have changed about our skull over hundreds and thousands of years. And it has changed literally the way that we breathe, which has also changed you know, what kind of diseases or infections or like I said, inflammation or all these different things that happens in our skull that affects, that also affects the way that we breathe. Well, this also in turn affects all kinds of things, mental health, physical exertion, uh, sleeping, like all these different aspects of our life. We don't even realize how much they are tied to our nose. Also our nose, our nasal passages are not studied very often. Like apparently most scientists are just like, yeah, the nose has sort of this one function, whatever. There's many other interesting things in our body to study. James Nestor has made our nose so fascinating in this book. I have caught myself thinking about the way that I'm breathing every every single day since I read this book, like not only making sure that I'm always breathing through my nose as much as possible. If I find that my mouth is a little bit open or whatever, like that really matters, but also slow breathing. He talks a lot about the fact that when we are hyperventilating, when we have anxiety, when we are stressed, when we are nervous, when we are concentrating or not concentrating or whatever, we often breathe more quickly. 
So we take in a lot more breath. We take in these big, deep breaths. We've been told that that's the key, you know, to breathe in deeply through your nose and out through your mouth. And he makes a real argument for breathing in a lot more slowly and only through your nose. Do not breathe out through your mouth. So I'm not, you know, I'm just summing up like this whole book of, of research and data and all of this. Take with it what you will. But for me, it has really mattered. I have been laying in bed and focusing on my breathing. I have been, you know, when I've taken a walk, really noticing how I'm breathing. My chest gets really tight when I get anxious. And so in order to take in more air, I do use my mouth primarily when I am feeling anxious. I've tried in the last week or two to really stop that. And I almost felt like I was going to have a panic attack in a store yesterday because I was forcing myself to not open my mouth and to only breathe through my nose while I was having some stress. I don't know if it worked or didn't, but it is making me very mindful of the way that I'm breathing. And also he just makes the history of it interesting. Like I I thought the evolution part of it was fascinating. And so, yeah, I don't know if I made a good case for breath by James Nestor, but it's not as boring as it sounds to read a whole book about your nose. (laughs) First of all, this sounds absolutely fascinating. I have been thinking about my breathing a lot lately as well, because I've been having a little bit of anxiety. And I, like you said, I get a racing heart in my chest and I also play a lot of sports and I feel like I am more out of breath than others around me, even though objectively I'm in really good shape. (laughs) So this is fascinating. I never knew you weren't supposed to breathe out through your mouth. And this sounds like an audio book that I should listen to too. You should, because it's also changed the shape of our teeth. Like um, our ancestors did not have crooked teeth when our skulls were wider. And when their breath wasn't going through their mouth as much, human skulls, teeth were straighter. Now breathing through in and out of our mouth and also the way we eat. And also because our skulls have gotten narrower, which has crowded things in. It's, I just thought it was so interesting. And the the sports piece is huge. There's a whole section on athletes who train, who have trained themselves to not breathe at all through their mouth and like how it extended their running times. They were making like personal records. There's been a few different experts over the years. Some of this is old, like from older Olympics and stuff like that, who train athletes specifically in their breathing slower. So not panting and through their nose and how it has changed their sports performance. So if that's something that's of interest to you, then you'll like that section. I thought the whole thing was interesting, actually. Absolutely. I have a tennis match on Wednesday, and I am going to try this out (laughs) for sure. It also sounds like, have you ever read Mary Roach? Yes. uh, I've, I've only read one of hers. I know she's written several, but yes. She does these little micro history types of things on bizarre things, like- I gulp was one. Wasn't decomposition one. Oh, was that one of her? I, I'm not sure if that was maybe. Um, and then there was another one about space, which is less of a micro history, but she gets into this, the like strange yet fascinating parts of science of these things that you don't think you would ever be interested in. Yeah. This is kind of what this was. And again, not sure why I picked this up, thoroughly enjoyed it and passing it along here. That's breath by James Nestor. And if you are an audiobook person, I really enjoyed it on audiobook. I am sure that you can agree that literally no one wants to smell bad. But sometimes regular underarm deodorant just isn't cutting it. Or maybe it's not your underarms that need help. 
With Lumi, you don't have to worry. Lumi is the first of its kind in total body deodorant and is fully safe to use anywhere on your body. It is clinically proven to block odor all day and control it for up to 72 hours. The secret is mandelic acid, where instead of masking odor with a fragrance, it stops the odor before it even starts. I especially love that Lumi deodorant is baking soda and paraben free, as well as pH balanced for safe use on all areas of your body. You can choose from a variety of bright scents like clean tangerine, lavender sage, and toasted coconut. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that equals over 40% off the starter pack. Use code U for 15% off your first purchase at lumideodorant.com. That's code U, Y-O-U, at Lumi, L-U-M-E, deodorant, D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's your next one? My next one is another book that will be one of my favorites of 2021. It's getting a fair amount of play right now because as of recording date, it's coming out tomorrow. But by the time this episode airs, it will already be out. It is When the Stars Go Dark by Paula McLean. Have you read her before? I read um, the Hemingway one. What's it called? The Paris Wife. Yes. Yes. So this book is not anything like anything she's ever written before. It's completely different. It is a literary police procedural slash mystery, whatever you want to call that. And it is about a missing persons detective named Anna Hart. And she is sort of, as many of these detectives do in novels, kind of fleeing their own personal past. So she goes to her back to her hometown of Mendocino, California, where the adopted daughter of a famous but reclusive actress has gone missing. And obviously, as tends to happen in these kinds of books, Anna Hart is compelled to help in the search for her. So I was a little nervous about this one because I love Paula McLean. She predominantly has written historical fiction about women and about real life women. So Like you mentioned, she wrote The Paris Wife, which was told from the perspective of Ernest Hemingway's first wife, Hadley. All fiction novels, by the way, but about real life people. And then she also wrote Circling the Sun about Beryl Markham, who was a female aviator in Africa back in a time when females didn't do things like that. This is the most personal novel she's ever written. She talks in the acknowledgement section of the book about how she grew up in foster care, just like her protagonist did. Anna Hart grew up in the foster care system. And she is also a survivor of sexual abuse. And it was crystal clear to me as I was reading this book that she either had very personal experience with childhood trauma 
or she had just done like an absurd amount of research and wrote about it beautifully because she writes about childhood trauma in this book. Just, it blew me away. It's of such a higher caliber than your average missing persons detective novel because of this writing about childhood trauma, not just for that reason, but that's one of them. And it's really atmospheric, especially for a mystery. She loves the outdoors and nature and the woods. And that really is permeated throughout the entire story. And she also, and I I thought this was super interesting. She weaves real life missing person cases that happened in that area of California during that specific time period where the story is set, which is the 19 early 1990s. She weaves these into the narrative. And for example, do you remember the story of Polly Kloss? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So she was kidnapped out of her bedroom with two friends in the bedroom with her from her house. So she was kidnapped and was later found dead. And her father teamed up with the father of the girl, Amber, to form Amber Alerts. And really, they formed a foundation that really changed the way that police handle missing persons cases. And so she talks about the Polly Kloss case throughout this story in a really organic way. It totally makes sense when you read it. This book for me is what I I like to call a unicorn book. And that is packed with depth and observation about life and great writing style, but also does not at all skimp on plot. Okay. I love that. That was already on my list because I have seen people talking about this one I do want to read that. That seems like something that would be great for my spring reading in terms of like, it's very well done, but not like so, it sounds like not like so dense and heavy that it will. No. Yeah. It's heavy for sure because of the subject matter, but like not the style. Like you can easily read through this. I didn't feel like I was struggling to concentrate, which is a big thing for me. And with me, the concentration piece is always driven more from the style, not the subject matter. So Mm -hmm. I can read about super dark, serious stuff if the style is in a way that is easy to read, even during times when I don't feel like I can concentrate very well. So that was When the Stars Go Dark by Paula McLean, and that just came out, y'all. So you can go grab it. Well, speaking of stylized writing or how the style can really affect the story or the book. My next pick is a novel called Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan. Now there's a few books out in the last couple of years with similar titles. Yes, (laughs) there are. (laughs) You sort of have to make sure that you're picking up the right one. There's a good neighborhood. There's Uh There's like a few of these. So this one is called Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan. So Good Neighbors is sort of about a street, a neighborhood, but it's like a street that it sounds like is almost like a, they don't describe it as a cul-de-sac, but it's sort of like a long street that kind of goes around a park, Maple Street. And you get to know several of the families that live on this street that sort of wraps around a park. Within the park, inside the park, there has been a huge sinkhole has like happened. And so it's, you know, danger. They like roped off this big sinkhole that happened in the middle of the park. Now I'm calling this stylized because this book, this story is not realistic fiction, (laughs) but it's not like, 
dystopian or anything either. It's, it's, it's more stylized. It is very similar vibes to me to leave the world behind from last year and a children's Bible also from last year. So there's these elements of like, something has happened or like something bigger picture is happening outside of the world you're reading about. So you're reading about Maple Street, but there's these, you know, you're not sure if it's climate change or, you know, apocalypse vibe, not really, but like, this is set a little bit in the future, very much like leave the world behind where there's not a, a crazy mystery of what has happened. You know, there's a sinkhole, but it just has this theme of like, it's not exactly the world that we're living in now. You know what I mean? Like there's this, there's other things happening. Slightly off. Slightly off. And it's, you know, a pretty affluent street, but then you have these new neighbors, the wild family that, you know, it was a real upgrade in their life to be able to move onto a street like this. And so some of the other neighbors look down upon them that maybe they're not quite, you know, classy enough or highbrow enough to live on their street. Their direct neighbors to the Wild family is the Schroeder family, and their two daughters have become friends, and the two moms were friends and have had a falling out. So that's kind of all you need to know, that this is a lot about like neighbor dynamics, if you will. I don't know how I feel about this book. (laughs) That is what I've heard from so many people about this book, that exact reaction. (laughs) Like there are some very interesting and cool things that Sarah Langan is doing. Like, again, like Leave the World Behind or a children's Bible, which I liked less than Leave the World Behind last year. But like, I can appreciate, I don't know if this is like a whole genre now or what, I can appreciate what's happening in this like stylized future. (laughs) But also I was like, I don't really like any of these characters. And I don't, that's not a requirement for me. I don't need to like anyone, but you need to have something that you're rooting for. Like there needs to be a a plot point that you're rooting for, or, you know, that you want to know what happens. Now there is, there is something that happens that sort of a a mystery-ish element that you, you do want to finish it to see like kind of what happens. But in general, I wasn't attached to it. So I was just reading it very detached, which is funny because the mood of the book is real detachment, like a little bit of detachment in, in connection to relationship or detachment to reality or detachment to the rest of the world, because you were literally only reading about Maple Street. Like you don't know anything else that's happening in the world. How do you find yourself? Like, do you, I know a lot of people, if the mood is detached, it makes them feel detached from the entire book and therefore not enjoy it because they didn't feel like they could become immersed. How do you feel about the the style choice of detachment? And does that affect your ability to like the book? I think it depends on my mood at the time. Like I, sometimes I really see the art. I mean, there's an artistry to writing in this way. It's not an accident that, like you said, it feels a little off. It feels a little like, I'm not really connecting here. But, you know, I don't like overly emotionally wrought books. Like, I don't like right. historical fiction, generally. I don't want to be, like, all empathetic with the characters. <laughs> like, I don't love historical deal. fiction either. I'm with you. I have a hard time with it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't mind detachment sometimes. And I didn't necessarily mind it in this book. Like, I understood what was happening. But I also felt like when I finished it, I wasn't, like oh my gosh, I have to tell everyone about this or, oh my gosh, that was genius. Or I I just never really felt like um, 
an overwhelming sense of anything necessarily, but, <laughs> but I appreciated it. Like, I just was like, oh, this is, I just appreciate something new. And now I've, I've rattled off that it's, it's like these other kind of more popular books also. So maybe this is sort of becoming a certain type of style. And I'm actually appreciating this. It, it still feels fresh to me, even though I've read a few books in this same manner to be like, oh, okay, this is maybe what we're doing right now. That's fine. But I just finished it and was like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> because of that reaction, would you think it would be a good book club book? Or is it, huh, I don't feel like talking about it anymore that I don't have a lot to say? Or, huh, I don't know how I feel about these very specific elements that I want to talk to somebody about. I think this would be a good book club book, but you would have to know that I can't imagine anyone coming to book club and being like, this is amazing. <laughs> but... That that's not a requirement for me for book club. For me, book club is like, oh, let's talk about this. Like, how did this work? What do we think about this relationship? Because in the book, you know, like any kind of dynamics book where you're looking at a lot of dysfunctional relationships, there's trauma, there's deception, there's like a war vet, there's the relationship between the teenagers, which is totally different from the relationship of the adults on the street. And that's very interesting to me. There's sort of some Stephen King it vibes in some ways of like the, the kids kind of banding together for, for better or worse, if you will. I don't don't even know how to talk about books like this, because again, it's not like you're, it's like, this is amazing. But if you were in a room full of people who'd also read this book, a la book club, I do think that people would have lots of opinions and would have lots of feelings of like, oh, I had a neighbor like that, or, oh, I had a childhood bullying experience like that, or I had a falling out with a friend like that. The two women sort of fall out at the very beginning. That was interesting. And that goes dark pretty quickly, but there's a lot of things to kind of grasp onto and relate to in this book. It's just that like, they didn't have the, the cohesiveness of like, There's no rallying cry, you know, so that by the end, you're not like, oh, humanity is beautiful or humanity is screwed. I read it. We're talking about it. Maybe we should change the title of this podcast episode. Instead of best books lately, it should just be (laughs) books lately. (laughs) Books lately that I was hit or miss about. Okay, so this next book is very much outside of my wheelhouse, but it was still five stars for me. So that makes it even more memorable and made me want to share it that much more. And I'm terribly sorry to do this to y'all. It's the only time I will do this today. It is not out until June 1st. So think of it as get it on your radar, go put in your library, hold in advance if you're able. And I'm really sorry, but I really wanted to share it because I just read it. It was so good. So it is called Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. Again, comes out June 1st. It is an own voices romance novel. I do not read romances, y'all. I do not. I told you I don't love happy books. Romances, by definition, need to be happy by the end, right? But I would say this book is so much more than a romance. And I would actually say that it is other things before it is a romance. And that's why I loved it. It is about two authors. One is an erotica writer and she's a single mom. Her name is Eva. And y'all, I will caveat that with, I'm not sure if this particular character is pronounced Eva or Ava. 
the audiobook is not out yet, so I don't know, but we're going to go with Eva for today. And the second author is Shane. He is a reclusive, very serious literary author, you know, nose in the air kind of thing, but also a personal disaster. And they had a steamy week together years and years ago, and they now have a chance to rekindle things when Shane shows up in New York at a literary panel. I have never read anything by Tia Williams before. She has written four other novels, two of which were YA. She's also a director at Estee Lauder. So she's in the beauty industry, which I think is interesting. That's like her full-time day job. This book has been compared to authors like Terry McMillan and Jasmine Guillory and Emily Henry, who wrote Beach Read last summer. It is one of the best romances I've ever read, mostly because it did not feel traditional. And it kind of reminded me of One to Watch by Kate Stamen London in that way. I don't know if you read that one or not. It was the book about the fictional Bachelorette show. Well, I don't read any romance. You don't read I mean, any romances. Yeah. Unless I read it on accident. And then I'm like, is this romance? Yeah. Well, both of these, like, there's so much more to them than romance. Like, romance is kind of the cherry on top, not the body of the cake, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I often find romances to be very cheesy. This one did not feel cheesy. It's very, like, snappy feeling to it. The writing zips along it's kind of crackles and both of these characters go on such intense personal journeys from start to finish. Eva is learning how to actually want things in her life and to take the steps to go after what she wants. And Shane is recovering from incredible trauma, a huge addiction problem. And it could have been a book just about that without the romance and been a great book. And the romance itself, these people went from broken to whole by the course of the book. And it's not just the other person that made them whole. They like got there by themselves too, which I loved. It was very empowering almost, which sometimes you don't find in a romance. Mm -hmm. It was super steamy. So, you know, for people that feel a certain way about that and Eva also had a chronic illness, which was interesting. But here, this last part too really kicked things over the edge for me as far as loving this one. It gets very meta about the publishing industry. And there's all this commentary on the romance genre, different tropes you find in it, different jargon, diversity in publishing. And I, you know, being a big reader, obviously love kind of the nuts and bolts of the publishing industry and behind the scenes, little Easter eggs with that. And then this is going to happen twice today, yet to come is the second time. But the author in this book, Eva, Eva is strategizing a book she would like to write and just kind of going through the process in her head of thinking out this book. And I am dying to read that fictional book. Like I sort of hope Tia Williams' next book is the fictional book she had Eva thinking about in this one. Oh, that's very Rainbow Rowell. Doesn't she do that? Oh, does she? I don't read a lot of her because I don't read a lot of YA, but I did. Does she do that? That'd be very cool if she did. I feel like she did that at least once with the um, Carry On book. And the, the Carry On was the characters of something, of a, the fan fiction book that now I can't think of the second. I'll put in the show notes as I think of it, of, of a book that she read where they're writing fan fiction about it. And then it turns out to be, then she writes the book. I'm, 
I'm butchering it, but Rainbow Ralph fans out there know I what I'm I can't even about. jump in to help you because I <laughs> don't know anything about Rainbow Ralph. <laughs> anyway, okay, that's so interesting. Why did you read it if this isn't really your normal thing? Great question. So there's one very unsexy answer and then one slightly sexier answer. The unsexy answer is that I put out a summer reading guide every year and I have these categories. One of my categories is something light and fun. Well, I am always short books for that category because of my reading taste. (laughs) So I was purposely trying to seek out books that could go into that category. So there was a very, you know, defined work-like purpose. The second slightly sexier reason is that a bookstagrammer named Tina, she's on bookstagram as TBR, et cetera. She's one of my best book recommendation sources. She had posted about this as being a romance that was not cheesy. So if that's the tagline, I'm like, okay, I can give it a shot. So, and I trust her implicitly. So that's the second reason I picked it up. Okay. I love that. And I follow TBR, et cetera, but I feel like right when you said that, I haven't seen her in my feed much. You know, the dadgum algorithm. I mark her as a close friend. Does that help? That should help, right? I know whenever I realize this has happened, like I haven't seen someone come through my feed that I really like, I go seek them out and then I just go like or comment on a few of their most recent posts or I watch their stories or a combination of all those things that tells Instagram that I'm, I like this person. (laughs) So y'all, I'm really sorry again about the June 1 publication date, but that was Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. Okay, so my last one (laughs) comes from a recommendation by Meredith of the Currently Reading Podcast from the episode that we recorded together Meredith and Katie, uh, the currently reading women, were on 10 Things to Tell You in episode 108. And are you going I, mermaid horror with this? I was about to say, <laughs> when Meredith said mermaid horror, I was like, I think I clicked purchase while we were recording. Yeah, I would be like, nope, run for the hills. <laughs> well, what's so funny is that I got a lot of comments or DMs or whatever about that episode. Of, and they were all saying the same thing. They were all like mermaid horror, hashtag mermaid horror. Well, I feel like that is something that you say that you describe a book that way and you're going to get a bunch of like celebration hands in the air. And then you're going to get a bunch of people that are like, absolutely not. <laughs> and no, nothing in between. That's true. Well, so I could not, you know, read this one fast enough. And I'm actually, here's the caveat. I very rarely do this because usually my reading life is different than it is right now, but I'm not a hundred percent through with Into the Drowning Deep by Mira Grant. That's the book, Into the Drowning Deep. I am almost all the way through, enough through that I felt like I can talk about mermaid horror because Meredith was right. That's exactly what this (laughs) book is. It is a a ship, a big, almost yacht-like ship that sets sail full of scientists. And I mean, all kinds of scientists scientists. We're talking like, you know, marine life scientists, sonar scientists, you know, all, all of the science people are on this ship that has set sail for where uh, an area where there's believed to be actual mermaids. Now mermaids in our popular culture have been portrayed as everything from like, you know, sirens in the Greek myths to like the little mermaid, Ariel, like mostly 
beautiful and charming and possibly deceptive, but like probably not like graphic murderers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm imagining Ariel with like a huge like butcher knife in her hand. (laughs) Like if Ariel had rows and rows of sharp teeth and um, (laughs) like an eel fin instead of like a a fish fin, you know, that's what the bottom half is. Ariel and Ursula, basically. Sort of. I when she, I think when, I think when Meredith described this book as mermaid horror, I think I was thinking, and, and I don't read much horror beyond Stephen King, honestly. I mean, I have, but it's not like you know, I'm not doing that monthly or anything. A lot of times there's a huge, huge buildup. And then the horror thing happens, I don't know later after you've like met everybody now you do meet all these characters on the boat but I feel like those mermaids they come fast and quick <laughs> like I was I wasn't totally prepared for the mermaid horror to start quite so quickly <laughs> but suddenly we have like you know mermaids scaling the boat and that's not a spoiler because it happens so quickly. Like there's just a lot of I don't know I don't even want to use the word violence because I feel like that's like not fair to like what true violence is because this book is almost cheesy in a, you know, B and C movie kind of way where you would like, if you watch this as a movie, you would be like, like snakes on a plane. That's what it's like, you know, it's like, (laughs) like where you're just like, this is ridiculous, but also I can't stop turning the page. (laughs) So do you find you're able to buy into that? Because I, I have trouble with like over the top plots where I, I'm like, this is absurd. This would never happen. I think that it's easier because it's so bananas. Like to me, horror that feels like it could be realistic, that is so much scarier. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Than, uh, than mermaids on a boat. I mean, sure. And But there's like some funny things in this book. It's very like, again, this isn't something I read very often. So maybe this is, maybe this is part of a horror genre that I'm just not all the way in on, but like, you remember how the scream movies were legitimately scary, but also funny. Yes. I feel like there's like, yeah, there can't be. Yes. That's the right word. That's, that's better than the word cheesy. I was trying to say into the draining deep, like it's almost cheesy, but really it's just like campy. Like there's some romances that strike up between the scientists and, and the different characters. And like, the book is just like, it's just so bonkers. And I, if I started with my recommendations with being like, we should really read harder, everyone, I'm ending it with like, we should really read more weird stuff like this. But I do just feel like it's nice to just get outside of your regular reading taste, whatever that is, and just sometimes read something so bonkers that you were just like, well, that was fun and crazy and weird. And that's how I feel about Into the Drowning Deep. It's going by, you know, very quickly. If you are a sensitive reader, I mean, it's truly murderous. So if that's going to freak you out, then don't do it. But it's not horror like I said of like, if there's such a thing as realistic horror, but like this feels more realistic. It's not that. (laughs) It does not feel realistic. It feels like mermaid horror. Right. (laughs) I can't say I'll ever pick this up. It's, but I mean, I do feel a little FOMO, like Meredith's talking about it. You're talking about it. I don't know. I don't, don't feel FOMO. I think if you're not, (laughs) 
if you're not attracted to the premise, then you you won't even necessarily enjoy the campiness. Like even if you can see, yes, I can see that this is like silly and fun and bizarro. But like if you're not into it, like if you're not piqued by it being called mermaid horror, then you're not going to be no. piqued by the whole thing. So you're not missing it. But interestingly, as I'm talking about all this and saying all these things I don't like about, you know, over the top plots, blah, blah, blah. I am currently, and I'm almost finished with a book that has a very kind of campy over the top plot that I've weirdly found myself enjoying. (laughs) It's not over the top in a way that's, you know, mermaid, like has beings doing things that they can't do in life. It was more over the top in a way that's like, events happen right on top of each other that like no way would these ever happen everything on top of each other that snowballs into what it did well you have to say what it is okay it is dial a for aunties coming out at the end of april another one of the books that i picked up for the same reason i picked up seven days in june okay well tell me the last book that you want to share so This is called Good Apple, Tales of a Southern Evangelical in New York by Elizabeth Passarella. It came out in January of this year. Yes, I have this book in my stack. In fact, I was introduced to her because she came out in January. Share Your Stuff came out in February. And so some people were sort of tagging us together. So I bought it. It came and I just haven't cracked it open yet. But please tell me what you think about it. So I think this is going to be kind of a, you know, the concept of mirror books and window books. I think this would be a little bit of a mirror book for you, sub out Los Angeles for New York type of thing. But the author grew up in a conservative family in Memphis, Tennessee. Her mom was Christian. Her dad was Jewish. Then she moved to New York City, married a Jewish New Yorker, and decided to raise her family in Manhattan. And this is also a mirror book for me because I grew up in a fairly conservative household in the South, not again, Virginia, not deep South. Then I lived in New York City for a very long time. I had children there, ultimately relocating back down south, but I did experience a lot of the things that Elizabeth Passarella talks about in this book. And she has a quote that just, this is from the book, but it perfectly encapsulates what the book is about. And that is identity is complicated. It is all about identity and the incongruous parts of it and how all those incongruous pieces fit together and also what other people think of those people with incongruous identities that don't neatly fit into a single box. And I've heard you talk about, you know, growing up in a small Southern town, moving to the big city, then dealing with a bunch of questions from people back home about, well, why are you making these life decisions and you've changed and blah, blah, blah. This has happened to me as well. Also changing political beliefs. She grew up in a Republican household, later became a Democrat. And I loved how she handled politics. She talks about people changing their beliefs, also believing things that don't all necessarily fall on one side of the political spectrum and how you can kind of reconcile those things or just become okay with never reconciling those things. And I really loved her take on thinking, she thinks that people from the far left need to spend more time among Republicans and people from the far right need to spend more time among Democrats. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. I love that message. (laughs) And personally, I moved to New York right around the same time period. She did. She talks about all these bars that like I went to too, and just nails the quirks of New York city life. Like 
husbands and wives arguing on the sidewalk with everyone around because there's no space to do it in your home away from your kids. Just like the quirky New York City things. She's also, she's very religious. I am not super religious. So I do know some people that read this book and were rubbed a little bit the wrong way by kind of, she uses a little bit of a religious lens to look at many different things she talks about. I just kind of like didn't mentally go deep with the religious parts. And that was fine for me. That, that didn't bother me, even though I'm not a super religious person. And ultimately this book is really about defending the choices you make in life and kind of having the freedom to make your own choices without the judgment and constant criticism from everyone around you. Okay. I definitely want to read this. I'm literally looking at it. It's over on my coffee table in my office because I bought it so recently and wanted to support other women authors publishing yes. in 2021 and all of that. So yes. But Laura, thank you I think for... you should listen to it. Oh, really? I do. I loved it on audio. And I know that, you know, you've been doing more nonfiction on audio, right? I think yes. you should listen to it. Use the paper copy for Instagram photos. Did she, does she read it herself? She does not read it herself, but I really liked the narrator. Okay, good tip. Good tip. All right, Sarah, this was so fun. Thank you for coming on the show to share the best stuff that you've read lately and listen to me share just the stuff I've read lately. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. This has been an honor. I listen to you, 10 Things to Tell You, every single week, and I can't believe I get to be on it. And I love talking books with you and I'm thrilled we've gotten to talk books multiple times recently. Yeah, this is super, super fun. Tell the listeners where they can find you, where they can listen to you on your show, where they can find you on social, all that good stuff. Yes. So my podcast is called Sarah's Bookshelves Live. It is Sarah with an H and I am on everywhere that you get your podcasts. I am on Instagram as at Sarah's Bookshelves and my blog is sarahsbookshelves.com. Love it. Love it. And you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.